0: I just want to say to all of you out there, you're not special, you're extraordinary. Everyone should have someone say that to them at one time in their lives, don't you think? Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer vlog and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about Potential, the 12th episode of Season 7. Potential aired on January 21st, 2003, and was written by Rebecca Rand Kirshner, with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was directed by James A. Kontner. This is Kontner's second to last episode of Buffy. He'll be back for Empty Places. The first episode of Buffy directed by Kontner with season two's Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Even in a highly serialized story like Buffy Season 7, the best episodes are about something unto themselves. The episodes may, and often must, push the big story forward as well, but they should be doing something independent at the same time. Potential is one of the best examples of this. While it doesn't really move the big story forward by much, it knows the story it's telling, and it tells it really well. All right. Let's get into the weeds. In Potential, Buffy trains the potentials, using Spike as an object lesson, in more ways than one.
1: So we're supposed to, like, make out with him or something?
0: As the Seers discover a new, unidentified potential in Sunnydale, Willow does a spell to find her. And the next thing we know, Dawn is glowing. The news comes as a shock to everyone, Dawn most of all.
1: Everything's different for me now.
0: Well, that's because you're a part of something larger, like being swallowed by something larger. Dawn sneaks out to think and runs into Amanda, who's had a run-in with a vampire at the school. As Buffy is out training and unreachable, Dawn decides to handle the situation herself. I can never remember! This have to be right-side-off or down to work? Which is it? Meanwhile, Buffy trains the potentials by bringing them to a demon bar, finding a vampire, and locking them in a crypt with it. Back at school, Dawn tries to fight off the vampire as bringers crash the party, coming not for Dawn, but for Amanda.
1: No! I don't want her! You
0: want me? Dawn hands the steak over to Amanda, who dusts the vamp, and then goes back to Camp Potential to share war stories with the other girls.
1: Yeah, when that vampire attacked me, I felt this kind of charge.
0: Dawn hits the books to find more information about the first, and Xander says he knows what it's like to always be near the spotlight, but never step into it. He talks about the way Dawn handed her power back to Amanda without thinking about it, and tells her something about her real power.
1: You're not special. You're extraordinary.
0: For a long time, I've been defending Dawn, even when she was at her worst in season six. I think Season 7 Dawn, and specifically the Dawn we see in this episode, is the reason why. We open with Dawn sitting in on the meeting with Buffy and the Potentials. Buffy is pontificating, and we get this.
1: Best we can tell, he, or, or more precisely, it, was putting a lot of stock in that Ubervamp thing. The chaka Khan.
0: Turkhan.: This is a subtle moment, and it's easy to miss, but it's important. Buffy doesn't know the right name for the ubervamp, but Dawn does. Dawn is paying attention. She likes the monsters. It matters to her what this thing is and what it's called. To Buffy, it's just another dead vamp moving on. But to Dawn, the monsterology is important and she knows her stuff. And a few moments later, we get this. You have a mission. A reason for being here.
1: They're not here by chance. You're here because you are the chosen ones. Don, you better
0: hurry up and eat something so you're not late for school. Dawn's face, as Buffy says this, is very telling. She doesn't know why she's there, what she's meant for, what she's supposed to do, and she wants that. Now to us, her passion for the monsterology, her knowledge, her courage, her capability, these all show us that she is an essential part of this team. But for Dawn, living forever in the shadow of her sister, the Slayer, all she sees is that she's not special. Not in a mystical chosen way, anyway. But when Willow does her locator spell, and it seems to select Dawn as Sunnydale's newest potential, everything changes. Dawn's sense of herself changes. And with bringers hunting down potentials in Sunnydale, she climbs out the window and goes for a walk. It's not smart, but it is brave. We see Dawn, who has been quietly watching the potentials train, using everything Buffy has taught them in her fight with that vampire. She runs when her instinct tells her to run. She goes to the chemistry room where she knows the terrain. She uses everything she has to fight, and when she can't win, she hands the power over to someone who can. This is
1: your battle, Amanda. No, I can't. You can. You've got to. Look, I've got your back, but this is something you have to do. It's something you are born to do. Here, this belongs to you.
0: Now, I've talked about misdirects before, when we're led to believe one thing, but the reality is, in fact, something else. And often this sort of thing is done cheaply, as the writers not only withhold information, but... Deliberately lie. And when all is revealed and you go back through the events of the episode, at some point we find those lies and it doesn't hold up together. This episode is an example of the misdirect done right. When we first see Amanda, she mentions that she was out looking for Buffy, so there's a reason why the orange light seemed to have selected Dawn. She was standing in front of the door, just as Amanda was standing behind it. It's a quick moment and easy to miss, but it's right there. And when you go back through the episode, everything holds up it's well done
1: instinct understand his but trust yours you're chosen for a reason oh. are you okay fine a couple of ribs ain't quite so right i'm fine let me see no it's fine.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: i'm gonna be okay
0: While the Buffy-Spike romance isn't a central feature of this episode, we do get some great moments. From the opening training session, where the heat and genuine caring between Buffy and Spike is clear enough for the potentials to notice. That's hot. To Buffy's co-opting of Amanda's problem to process her own feelings on this complicated relationship.
1: Sometimes that's how people relate. Being mean to each other. Even mortal enemies. Well, then with the. And that leads to no good. Absolutely no good. And much confusion. And then it's over. Absolutely, seriously, definitely over. And that's confusing too, the over part. Which it is. Over.
0: We can see that this romance is simmering quite nicely in the background, which is enough to make this episode a spuffy fan favorite. But honestly, the stuff that I find most compelling about the relationship is how well these two work together. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you want to write a great romance, get them working as a team, which we've been doing with Buffy and Spike since the end of season two. Talk about a long boil.
1: We don't have to kill a vampire, do we? What? Uh, just suppose he got out and was maybe, like, encouraged toward the gym while the marching band was playing, because the way they looked down the swing choir it might be,
0: you know, funny. <laughs> Seeing Sarah Hagen, who plays Amanda, show up again after her wonderful cameo in Help is a joy. While most of the potentials have just been scared girls without much characterization, in the short time we spent with Amanda, we already knew she's a smart, tough kid, and she's taking no shit. And the way she handles the vampire, first locking him up in the school and getting away, then going back with Dawn to finish him off, shows that she's both brave and capable. But we're getting some really nice character work with Vi and Rona as well. Rona, while always in the background and never really the focus of any scene, has some fantastic moments. Okay. These two are dead. Why? Because the black chick always gets it first. And Vi, played by the wonderful Felicia Day, is adorably geeky and uncertain. Vi, do you think I care if it's a fair fight? No, 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 sir. You don't
1: play by the rules, and I have learned a valuable lesson of some sort.
0: And even though he's not a potential, Andrew fills out the crew nicely, with his desperate need to be part of the gang despite being, you know, evil-ish. You don't want me coming along because you think I'm evil.
1: He doesn't seem evil, exactly. He's not evil, but when he gets close to it, he picks up its flavor like a mushroom or something.
0: These little lines are not big story moments. They just take a second, but they do so much heavy lifting when it comes to character. Rebecca Rand Kirshner has proven herself to be no slouch. She does some fantastic work here. Maybe that's your power. What? Seeing. Knowing.
1: (laughs) Maybe it is. Maybe I should get a cape.
0: Xander is a problem in Buffy. We have a strong case of narrative gaslighting here, which is when a character is written as though they're perfectly all right, when they are demonstrably not... All right. One of my classic examples of this is the character of Tom Scavo in Desperate Housewives, which is why I used to call this phenomenon Scavonian dissonance, as that character was presented within the world as the best husband ever when in action he was immature, selfish, cruel, and often willfully stupid. Now, it's okay to have a character who is immature, selfish, cruel, and willfully stupid if we textually acknowledge that. When we have a bad character who has no consequences for his horrible actions, whose behavior isn't called out and recognized, who is treated as a hero when he is, in fact, kind of an asshole, that's narrative gaslighting. We are told one thing, shown another, and then expected to believe what we're told over what we see demonstrated before us. We've had this exact problem with Xander almost from the beginning. Xander is cute and funny, and during my first few runs through Buffy when I wasn't looking at the show critically, I loved him. He made me laugh, he was vulnerable, he was goofy. But on this run through of Buffy, I've seen the things that have rightfully bothered a lot of people. Xander acts as though because he has a crush on Buffy that he has a right to a return of those affections. He whines to Willow, who he knows is in love with him, about his love for Buffy and is petulant with her about it. And no consequences. When he tells Buffy to kick Angel's ass, deliberately withholding the fact that Willow is at that moment trying to restore Angel's soul, Xander never has a consequence for that. We only barely acknowledge it a couple of times much later in the story, and it's pretty much just whistled past. No consequences. He casts a love spell to make Cordelia fall in love with him, which shows a callous lack of concern for her agency and her consent. The spell goes wildly wrong, but in the end, Xander still gets the girl. No consequences. Then, after years of letting Willow just love him and not returning her affections, he starts up with her while she's with Oz and he's with Cordelia, hurting everyone involved. In the end, Cordelia ends obscured by Rebar, and Xander gets to feel sorry. For himself. Because he lost Cordelia. So, a little consequence, but not near enough. Xander's bad behavior is most markedly demonstrated in his relationship with Anya. He's mean to her. He doesn't respect her. He puts her down in front of his friends, using her as the butt of every joke. Instead of recognizing how wholly unworthy he is of Anya, the way he was wholly unworthy of Cordelia, he acts as though her love is a burden that he has to carry, and in the end, he leaves her at the altar, humiliating her in front of everyone rather than just talking to her about his fears and being the one to face the church full of friends and family. But throughout, we treat all of this as though it's okay. It's just cute Xander, and isn't it sad how he suffers over the brutal way he treated this woman? And yet, I still love Xander. I always love Xander. He's fun, and he makes me laugh, and that is my downfall with men, and it has stuck me with more than one Xander type in my romantic life, which has never served me well. But it's this moment in potential that makes Xander work for me, that shows the Xander we should have had all along. When he speaks to Dawn and tells her what he sees in her, we see that it's not just Dawn who has reached her potential in this episode. I
1: see more than anybody realizes because nobody's watching me. I saw you last night. I see you working here today. You're not special. You're extraordinary.
0: Maybe that shouldn't be enough to make me forgive him for six seasons of dreadful behavior. But it kind of is. It's possible I should take that up with my therapist. Death is what a Slayer breathes.
1: What a Slayer dreams about when she sleeps. Death is what a Slayer lives. My death could make you the next Slayer.
0: There's been some recent discussion in the Chipperverse about how the world building around the Slayer line works. Buffy died during her confrontation with the Master in Season 1, and Kendra was chosen. Drusilla killed Kendra, and Faith was chosen. Buffy died again after the confrontation with Glory. No new Slayer. We have some explanations for this, none of them textual. It has been reported that Joss Whedon said that when Buffy died the first time, the primary Slayer line went to Faith, and only her death will raise another Slayer. But that's extra textual. And by the rules of our favorite chipperish party game, Death of the Author, it doesn't really count. What we have in the text is this. Buffy died once, new Slayer. Buffy died a second time, no new Slayer. That we know of. But the first is killing all potentials, and textually in Bring on the Night we get this from Buffy. That's what it wants.
1: Yes. To erase all the Slayers in training and their Watchers along with their method. And then Faith, and then me. And with all the potentials gone and no way of
0: making another, it's the end. No more Slayer. So it would appear that at least Buffy believes that her death would bring on another Slayer. Because if that wasn't true, it would stand a reason that the First would know that, and would have done away with her first instead of saving her for last. Last week in Showtime, we learned from Beljox's eye that it was the second raising of Buffy that threw the mystical forces out of whack, making it possible for the First to make its move, and that's what it's doing. In this episode, as we just saw at the top of the segment, it's clear that Buffy believes her death will bring another Slayer. But if that was true, her second death would have brought on another Slayer line, and presumably the first would have a vested interest in that line as well. All of this to say, I think that no one really thought about it in the run of Buffy, and we just have some textual inconsistency. We could just say that Buffy's mistaken. She thinks her death would bring on another Slayer lying, but if that's true, if that's what she believes, then wouldn't she be interested in finding the Slayer that was called at her second death and bringing her in to help with the fight as much as to provide protection from the first? Since she's not doing that, we can presume that Buffy knows full well there isn't another Slayer out there. So the only conclusion there is that Buffy is lying. But why would she lie? She knows that all she has to do is touch the people in the room, and she can be sure none of them are the first, so there's no need to really lie on that account. I mean, I imagine every Slayer meeting starts with everyone holding hands for just a second, just to be sure. Maybe it's that she knows she needs to lead these guys, and they need to see her as special. But she's still the longest surviving Slayer in the world. I mean, I would think that would give her enough street cred. I think the best you can do with this is just say that it's simpler for Buffy to not have to explain all of this to the potentials. Keep it simple. Focus on the fight. I'm not sure there's any explanation here that will sew our textual evidence up nice and tidy, but if you have one, I'd sure love to hear it. All right, that's it for today. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by Mandy Kay, host of the fantastic podcast Pop Culturally Deprived with Matthew Vose. Mandy supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show she wants. Thank you, Mandy. And thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com chipperish to find out how you too can become a Still Pretty producer. And I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 7, Episode 13, The Killer in Me. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com chipperish.